your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope, on Tuesday, August 5th. Our guest today is Dr. Harry Schneider, Associate Research Scientist, Functional MRI Research Center of Columbia University, uh, also known as the Program for Imaging and Cognitive Sciences. We were also uh, supposed to be joined by Dr. Richard Fry. However, they're having a tropical storm where he is at in Texas, and uh, so the phone service isn't up. So we hope to talk to Dr. Richard Fry on another occasion. Dr. Schneider has a fascinating new emerging theory about teaching language to uh, low-functioning children on the spectrum, and I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Harry Schneider. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Dr. Schneider, why don't we start off with talking about your work as it relates to autism, language, and uh, your your work with using functional MRI and diffuser tensor imaging. I'm sorry, sure. diffusion tensor imaging. Uh, otherwise, more simply known as a DTI. Uh, sure. Um, I became fascinated with autism because I am very fascinated with language in general. Um, I, I am a physician and I love medicine, but um, my passion sometimes lies with languages, why people speak, how they speak, how they learn a second language, how some become fluent and others don't, and even people that are fluent in three or four languages that that can hit their head and lose all three and speak only one language. So over the years, I've been working on um, people who've lost languages in one form or another or trying to learn them, trying to figure out how all this works in the brain. With respect to autism, um, although everybody knows that there are um, many, many symptoms on the spectrum. Some people call them the core symptoms, the social issues and the behavioral issues. Um, I'm much more interested, of course, in the communication and language issues. And um, what I decided to do was try to figure out why is it that there are so many children that are nonverbal and there are so many children that are minimally verbal, um, that whether they have one, words, one word or, or, or 20 words or even 200 words, what I began to notice over the years was that they, was that they had one thing in common, and that was they were all memorizing their words. And so that to me was, was something new. It sort of reminded me of learning a second language where you had to memorize everything one week and um, try to be able to say it the next week, but it never lasted very long, and it never allowed a person, let's say, learning Spanish or French to become fluent. So in studying these children after a few years, the first thing I, I realized, probably the main thing was, that they never acquired a grammar. 
And so before I talk about the functional MRI, I'll briefly mention what that means. That for you or I to speak the way we do, it means that we have um, internalized, we've acquired a little grammar module that, that we're really born with. According to many people, where our brains are hardwired, we have this little part of the brain set aside, just ready to go to learn how to speak a language. And I guess if you all think about how you learn how to speak, you'd be hard-pressed to figure it out. But certainly no one taught us how to speak English, if that's our first language. And um, no one, we didn't have to conjugate verbs or, or do anything. But after 12, 24 months, we were able to just turn around and speak back to our parents. So to summarize the thing about language and autism, um, you can sort of say that, that languages or the way we use languages are almost infinite in the amount of things that we can say. But a child during the child's infancy, now that lasts only one to two years. And you, you can't learn an entire language just by memorizing it, memorizing it. So these children, after two years, are really leaping into some unknown territory with respect to language. They can generalize. Um, and they can speak as many sentences as they want because they've acquired grammar, uh, which is really knowing the order of words and, like, what is a subject and a verb and an object, um, how it works, so that eventually they can um, plug 100 verbs and 100 subjects and 100 objects into the right place and begin speaking. So that's what I began to learn about children with autism and the difficulty with language. It was all memorized and they had no grammar. Yeah, I've, I've heard you use the term low-functioning autism, and I uh, used that at the beginning of this program. So could you go ahead and define what you are meaning by yeah. low-functioning well, autism? Well, well, for me, for me low-functioning autism, I'm defining that solely in terms of their ability to produce speech. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you're saying that um, that these children are memorizing words and are not able to just plug them into grammar. Is that is there a differentiation between that and the children who are termed as having high functioning autism? Well, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I can't speak to all the children that um, have high functioning autism because they haven't imaged that population of children. But having read something about that, and certainly having imaged these children who are low-functioning with respect to language, um, the difference is, even within, well, we don't have many definitions of autism in terms of language. It's really low or high or one or two other categories. It would be nice if we had 15 or 20 uh, language levels for autism. But whether these children speak 1, 5, 10, or 250 words... Um, we've realized that they're all memorized for use in the, <clears throat> in the proper situations to communicate. The children who have... The, the children who have autism, whether they're nonverbal, verbal, or slightly higher functioning, uh, let's say 200 and some odd words, all those words are purely memory. They don't know how to create new sentences. They can't initiate spontaneous sentences. They can't engage in a conversation that they can't use their grammar machinery, so to speak, to just come out and generate anything they want to say 
um, that's not something that they memorized. That would be the real difference between the two types of people. That is the child with autism and the neurotypical child. Okay, but you're saying that this, what you've just described applies to all levels of affect within ASD. Yes. Within autism spectrum disorder. Yes. You're, you have a background as a linguist, correct, and you're fluent in many languages. Yes. So was this part of the way that you were able to look at these children, look at these imaging studies, and develop a novel therapy? Um, absolutely, yes. I think my, my learning languages um, at a younger age and being fluent in them and then studying how they worked um, was what made me want to figure out why these children have to memorize uh, what happened during the first two years of their life that they couldn't just sit in a high chair and unconsciously and automatically acquire this grammar. So, so absolutely, yes. Um, that's what made me want to first understand it better from a language point of view, <clears throat> then try to understand it from a, a brain point of view, and then develop a language intervention that might help them once and if I understood what was going on. So if I wanted to learn, and we're jumping ahead here, we'll backtrack. For sure. Our but if I wanted to learn Japanese, would I need to learn a new grammar module in, for my brain? That's a very good question. If you wanted to learn Japanese enough to, um, so that you could go to Japan and be functional and have a basic conversation, um, then you wouldn't have to really engage your language module. You could just memorize enough things, hello, how are you, how much does this cost, um, get to the bank and all the, the things that you would need to do, uh, but that would be pure memory, no different from what you'd have to memorize to take a history test. So, so to answer that, no, you would not. But if for some odd reason somebody offered you um, millions of dollars to go to Japan and give this lecture and do it for a couple of years, you might be very motivated to really become fluent in Japanese. So it's the issue of becoming fluent um, that you'd be talking in Japan in Japanese just like you're talking to me now. That part, the ability to become fluent, then you'd have to engage this inborn language module that you have You'd have to make it come to life and start to work for Japanese just as you've had it working for English. So we're going, when we continue, um, we will be talking about how we acquire that new language, that new grammar module that allows us to become fluent, that would allow me to go to Japan and become a foreign diplomat. Uh, okay. Right. That's, that's what your therapy is like. Is that a good analogy? I think that's a very good analogy. It's Yes, it would be learning to turn on that grammar module or if not, have the brain become plastic enough so that it can develop something similar to the language module so that you could become fluent. Yes, that would be a very good analogy. Have the brain become plastic? <laughs> yes, actually have the brain become plastic. How we know that the brain is plastic in general when people get injured and, and can't use a finger very well, um, that there are parts of the brain that will take over the function for that finger um, and it will be able to work as if it were um, 
doing the job for that finger. So the brain is naturally plastic. That is, it can change functions. One part can take over the function of another part if it has to. But it can be made even more plastic if we motivate it the right way. And, of course, motivation and dopamine and the things that most people have heard about uh, would be the key players in making a brain even more plastic. Excellent. And we will pick up with that thought when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you've tried everything on the market and can't seem to get the radiant results you want from your skincare routine, it's time you stop shopping and start listening. Skin Health Today will help you take charge and start making smart choices for a lifetime of radiant skin and positive self-image. Join host Celeste Hilling and her esteemed panel of experts every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for Skin Health Today on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Welcome back. We are continuing our discussion with Dr. Harry Schneider, Associate Research Scientist, Functional MRI Research Center of Columbia University, about organization in the brains of children with autism, language, and theoretical application to treatment. When we left off last time, we were talking about evidence of plasticity in the brain, uh, particularly as it relates to children with autism, and Dr. Schneider was talking about uh, dopamine in relation to that. And I understand, Dr. Schneider, you've actually also seen evidence uh, through your imaging studies of how 
there are um, other parts of the brain in children with what you're terming low-functional autism for the purpose of language that are picking up for uh, where language, where expressive language should be processed. Did I get that right? Uh, you absolutely definitely got that right. Uh, but I think for me to expand on this, would this be a good time to talk a little bit about functional MRI and how I came to find these areas? Sure. Okay, well, for those who don't know about functional MRI, um, I'll just give you a, a brief explanation uh, about what it is and what it allows us to see so that I can make statements like different parts of the brain are being used. Functional MRI, um, half of it is just like regular MRI. And for those who've seen an MRI machine or have had one, uh, makes a lot of noise, you go in the scanner, and the first part of the exam is simply taking pictures of the brain. So if somebody had a headache and their doctor said get an MRI of their brain, we would see the anatomy, where their lobes are, and basically just make sure that everything looks okay. So the regular MRI part of this is just the brain anatomy and does it look good. The functional part means we want to know not just what it looks like, but um, how is it functioning. And sometimes a good example is for those who are not very good with car engines like me, we could both look at two different automobile engines and go, well, they both look great. They look like they're set up correctly, but one will start and the other won't start. Um, so just looking at the anatomy of a car engine or a brain doesn't say how it's working. So with functional MRI, what we do is with respect to children who have low-functioning autism anyway, with respect to language, when they're in the scanner, we have them listen to language. In this case, it's usually their parents' voices, mom and then dad, um, over several minutes, sometimes two and a half minutes um, each time they do it, saying they're doing a good job and relax, and we give them things to say, or we have them listening to music. And the purpose of this is so that with functional MRI, uh, we're able to look at tiny pieces of the brain uh, called voxels, which is really about the size of a small grain of rice. And because we know that when the brain is working to do something, in this case like listening to language, that part of the brain is, has to use more oxygen, just like a muscle, but if it's working or you're working out or your heart, when you do things, it needs more oxygen to work better. Well, certainly with the brain, when it's listening to language, there are definitely areas in the brain that we're born with that will start to function more than others, will need more oxygen. And what functional MRI allows us to do with a big computer is to analyze every voxel or grain of rice in the brain and see what kind of signal it gives off with respect to how much oxygen it's using or not. And so we're able to see what parts of the brain are being activated for language. So that said, um, we come away with some very nice images of what areas of the brain are being activated, which shows up on the MRI film has a big yellow um, blob, we call them, or a, a, an activation something that allows us to see where the rest of the brain is dark. This language area might be lit up brightly yellow, maybe, let's say, one inch round or something. So we, we can see what's working, what's not working. And then finally, um, the big question is, 
are these things connected the right way? Normally, um, when we listen to language and speak, the language comes in through the ear, and we have an auditory or hearing cortex that understands that, and of course we see that on the image. Then we try to understand everything we hear, and we call that area Wernicke's area, I think named after a jerk. Yeah, a German scientist named Wernicke. But the whole idea is that when we finally make sense out of everything we hear, that's more towards the back of the brain, all that information has to be sent to the front of the brain, and the key player there is an area called Broca's area, which I think many of you have heard. Uh, Broca was a French physician, I believe. But nonetheless, it's, it's the front part, the Broca's area, that allows us to speak and respond to what was said to us. But there has to be a connection between those two areas. And certainly there are many, many, many more areas involved in language understanding and production. But for the moment, um, just choosing these two key players allows us to get a good idea of how the low-functioning autistic brain is working. So are you saying that in a uh, person's terms, neurotypical, that there are two distinct portions of the brain that deal with receptive language and expressive language and that this type of thing can be seen on fMRI? Yes, I think you've explained it perfectly. There are certainly more than two, but, but the two main key players are just what you said. Yes, one, two, receive and understand the language, and another to produce the language, yes. So, Doctor, and we can see them. Dr. Schneider, if we are have a child who is termed as nonverbal, how would you know if Broca's area was working or not since the child's nonverbal when you do these functional MRI? Well, if we have a child that's termed nonverbal, and the question is, well, how do we see an area that produces language when sometimes the child is in the scanner and, of course, the child is not speaking, the child is just listening? Um, I think we all intuitively understand and would agree that if we went to see a movie um, and we were watching what was going on, we'd be speaking internally to ourselves. We would make a comment about the actor or the scene or certainly even when we're in class listening to things, um, internally our brain is, is, is speaking. It's trying to make a comment of what's being said. It's just that we choose not to say it. So we know from years of experience that just listening to a language will, in, in a normal child or neurotypical child, um, make Broca's area light up as if it were speaking um, because you don't have to speak you don't have to verbally speak for that area to light up. I hope that that, that explains it, but that's um, it, it, it's almost common sense that, that we speak internally when we hear things, and whether or not we use words, Broca's area will still light up. So what lights up when people are just thinking in general? Or does uh, Broca's area light up when you're thinking about something that you that's just been said to you? Well, I, that, that, that's probably a great question that goes beyond the scope, but I think it's worthwhile answering in part. If we're just listening to something, I guess it depends what the something is. If it's a history lesson, um, certainly the comprehension area will light up the back part, and always um, the production area will light up because we'll 
be commenting to ourselves or repeating to ourselves about a particular year uh, or a particular fact or war, a date or something. So we'll always be responding. But if the conversation is more emotional or it, it evokes meaning to us for a certain reason, something that happened or we don't like what the person's saying, that a whole host of other parts of the brain areas will also light up and will connect themselves to both Wernicke's and Broca's and perhaps modify our response. So you've gone in and you've scanned children uh, whom you've termed for language purposes as having low-functioning autism, and uh, you have actually seen that a different part of the brain lights up. Tell us what you've seen. Okay. Um, we've seen a lot. But, yes, with children, we've been imaging children aged let's say, 4 to 12. And um, in most of the cases, the age itself is, is, is not a factor. Um, sometimes the amount of words is a factor, but what we're seeing is that common to all of these children is that Broca's area um, does not become activated. So even though they're hearing speech, um, whereas you or I would activate our Broca's area be trying to say something back, their Broca's area does not become activated. And the second main thing or common point or neural signature, whichever word we use, things in common to these children, is that the connections between the comprehension part, the Wernicke's part, and the production part or the Broca's part is incomplete. Um, and I say that because we've learned that there are two ways to connect from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. One way um, we've, well, we call it the northern route because it's a fun way to say it without using a lot of technical language. Um, and that northern route might be if, you, if the hearing, the comprehension part of the brain is just behind your ear. These fibers, the wiring, so to speak, would normally go sort of over the ear, that's a good way to visualize it, and then connect to Broca's area. And in these children, we have not found any of them that have had a complete connection to Broca's area using the northern route, which is the most common route that people would use. However, there is also what we have chosen to dub a southern route, uh, a route that would connect Wernicke's area, that would sort of go underneath the ear, and head towards Broca's, the production part. And in some of those children, we are seeing a um, we are seeing a connection between the back and the front. So, is it still Broca's area that is the language production part in children who at least were once low, nonverbal or low functioning? Is it still Broca's area lighting up for production, or is it another area? And the difference is just the southern route that you described the connection. Okay. Um, I should have rephrased that. Although we are seeing the southern route go towards Broca's area, um, Broca's area uh, usually doesn't light up anyway. And we'll continue when we come back. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and stay tuned. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. 
More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Welcome back. So we were talking with Dr. Harry Schneider about what area in the brain of uh, children who are nonverbal is he seeing light up using functional MRI um, insofar as where language would be produced in their brains or where the grammar, grammar module would be? I think that's a separate question. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Oh, uh, uh, was that a question? Or, sure. Uh, okay. Could, could you repeat the question? I was kind of focusing in on what you were saying, and not sure. when you were going to ask a question at the end of that. I'm sorry. Uh, we were we were going to pick up with what area of the brain you are seeing light up, and okay. so far as language production is concerned in children with low functioning autism, and then where is that grammar module that you were referring to earlier? Okay. So thank you. Um, so what we're seeing in the low-functioning language children, so to speak, is we are seeing Wernicke's or the comprehension area lighting up, which is good. Um, um, next to that is the hearing part of the brain, the auditory cortex, and that is lighting up. And I'm mentioning that because um, many parents initially had concerns about whether their child could hear, um, but so far we, we know that all these children hear fine, 
that there is no hearing disorder, um, and they can understand things pretty well, but only to a basic level. Um, they're not sending the information over to Broca's area, which is the production part, because at least with respect to that northern route, which we call the arcuate fasciculus, it's just, it's almost as if it's cut in half. It stops halfway there, never makes it. Uh, we've seen that sometimes it does make it or tries to go, that is, the comprehension area, does try to go to the front of the brain where Broca's area is, and it does take the southern route, and it it often goes to where Broca's area should be, but there is no Broca's area that's lighting up. So what do we see um, for language? Because, again, these children, although they have memorized all of their language, they, they, they can't speak. So what we're finding is that there are areas in the back of the brain, in a part of the brain called the parietal lobe, which is mainly used to memorize things in general, uh, again, like the history test or anything else, um, that that part of the brain has adapted, has become plastic. It was able to take over a language production function. So the parts of the brain that we're seeing activated for language, among others, are not the traditional speech production areas or even the motor planning areas, which many people know about because it does take a lot of planning to put a sentence together. Uh, but in fact, areas towards the back of the brain have taken over um, and areas on the right side of the brain that are similar have taken over to produce speech. Fascinating. Okay, so as in um, my, uh, my stepson's case where... Um, he can generalize, and you know he's done very well with biomedical intervention and adjunct therapies. Um, he can generalize, and he can put together sentences, and he can have a conversation, and he can write stories. Would it be that the back part in the parietal lobe has taken over with that grammar module and that speech production? Well, that also is a good question, but not having imaged your son, the, the only other example I could give you would be is we have imaged what we call autistic savants. And these are children who, um, well, for those who have seen Rain Man, for example, which tried to put, portray something like that, these are children who become very expert in one particular thing. Uh, the children that we imaged were good with calendars. We can give them a year like or date, March 22, 1902, and they will give us the entire weather pattern for that day and on and on, and they will converse and interact with us. So to all intents and purposes, as long as we're talking about, let's say, the weather and dates in this case, this savant um, was able to converse. And when we imaged him, he too was not using Broca's area. He was using the back part of his brain, just like the other low-functioning children. But again... That was him and a few other savants. But in the case of your son, I can't say which part he's using because we haven't imaged him yet. Okay, fair enough. Um, I just I know that there are children, uh, many of whom are considered uh, recovered or have lost their classification or um, are indistinguishable in a group of their peers who um, do seem to be having conversation and generalizing. And so I'm wondering if, um, they've adapted another part of their brain to include this grammar module that you referred to or uh, what have you. Well, okay. Um, 
let me begin by saying the answer is that I don't know right. uh, because we haven't imaged those children either yet right. um, how it is that they have, you know, been declassified, so to speak, or, or now able to speak and are off the spectrum, whether they've um, just reactivated the normal machinery or they were able to make good use of the... Hello? Yes. Okay, go ahead. Okay, or, or make use of the grammar module. But just to explain briefly about this grammar module, which may help set up the picture, um, during the first two years of life, an infant doesn't use, the infant doesn't use most of the surface of the brain that we're all familiar with, with these convolutions and ups and downs. Um, they're mainly using what we call more primitive brain structures. People have heard of the cerebellum in the back of the brain, which is for balancing and making sure we don't fall apart, I mean, fall over. Um, they're using st structures in the middle of the brain called their basal ganglia, which we all use to do automatic functions like walking, eating, riding a bicycle, and even driving a car home from work without thinking about it. So during the first two years, this automatic machinery which has little to do with the surface of the brain that we've been talking about, uh, is able to pick up unconsciously and automatically, without thinking about it, this grammar, um, and then later on be able to use it. So it's this machinery that we're really talking about that will allow the child with autism, if that can be reactivated, to be able to become more fluent instead of just memorizing words. So tell us about your therapy. You have uh, looked at the brains of these children. I know that you are having some success eliciting uh, spoken language with these children, and tell us how you're doing it. You're combining what you've seen in the brain uh, with your skill as a linguist, and correct me if I'm wrong, to develop this novel therapy, uh, this, this wonderful emerging theory. Yes. Um I'm happy to say that since I last gave this lecture, um, we have been working so far with eight to ten children um, who have actually we've documented about a 10 to 15 percent increase in um, spontaneous verbal production where, where they can respond and, and they seem more normal. So whatever we're doing seems to be working so far, but what is it that we're doing? We tell parents that we're going to sort of take the child back to infancy and and teach them without teaching them. When they ask me what that means, I, I tell them that um, things like ABA and the other behavioral therapies are excellent. They're out there. They should continue with them. But those therapies are more talking to the child and guiding, guiding them along about what to do. We've been able to recreate what we call an implicit learning system, which means you're not really saying it, but they're just somehow getting it, in which they're able to watch what other people do, listen to a conversation, which is very highly structured, but which allows them to be able to pick up, um, let's say, a verb, a subject and a verb, I want, or a verb in and out, like push up go down, give water. Um, but the the hallmark of this sort of 
language therapy is not telling them what to do, not modeling anything, not making them imitate or repeat anything, rather creating situations which are highly motivated. And here's where that dopamine comes in. Because motivation of any sort, whether because they're happy or they're laughing or they're in a situation that they want to be in uh, or they want to watch us play enjoying in, or even a situation where they might be angry because they're not getting what they want, all of those situations produce this neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine is the key player when it comes to these primitive learning systems that allows these children to once again, or maybe for the first time, pick up these basic grammar functions. So common to all the different treatments that we use is this continual... um, use of implicit teaching, that is teaching without telling them what to do, if, if that makes sense. But, but I'll end that part by saying most parents come in, maybe all parents come in and go, how can you do that? How can you possibly teach without teaching? And yet after one or two times, they, they, they kind of get it, where the child watches and observes and is then made to interact by motivation. Where do you get the dopamine from, for those who don't know? Oh, we, we, we do. <laughs> um, the, the, the children make the dopamine. Uh huh. You, um, you don't have to buy it at a drugstore. You don't have to buy it at a drugstore. There are certainly some uh, supplements that can be used to just make dopamine more available in the food a child, a child eats. But we have been able to prove uh, and demonstrate that the dopamine-producing areas of the brain uh, are functioning over time when they are happy and motivated. So that dopamine is more than enough for them to do what they need to do. Okay. And um, I'd like to pick up on that note when we come back, since we have another uh, second here um, for, for this segment of our program before we go to break. Why don't you tell people what your website is? Go ahead. Oh, it's www.harrydschneidermd.com. Harrydschneidermd.com. Okay, and we'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Wake up and chat. He'll get you right back to your head. 
JackLaLane.com presents Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Each week, Jack is joined by Elaine LaLane and his nephew, bodybuilder, kinesiologist, and personal trainer, Chris LaLane, to answer your questions and help you overcome your fitness roadblocks. That's three times the diet and fitness know-how. Three times the entertainment. Tune in every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific to Jack LaLane Live on the Voice America Health and Wellness Radio Network. Hypnosis, what a completely misunderstood word. There are all kinds of myths and superstitions surrounding the concept of hypnosis. The truth is that it can be used safely in practices of health and wellness. Join consulting hypnotist Jennifer Van Wee for the program Hypnosis for Positive Life Changes and learn how to experience relaxation to enhance your ability to cope with stress and other complicated issues. Hypnosis for Positive Life Changes airs Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Health and Wellness network opinions options answers you're listening to voice america health and wellness welcome back to autism one a conversation of hope with terry aranga if you have a question or comment call us toll free at 866-472-5792 now back to the program here's terry okay we're back with dr harry schneider and we're going to get into the real nuts and bolts of this fascinating, important, hopeful intervention. And um, we were talking about dopamine and that how dopamine is uh, produced in the human body. It's not something that you just need to go run out and get a prescription for, and I think that's great. And, Dr. Schneider, why don't you pick up? Okay. So getting to the nuts and bolts of of these treatments, um, as I said before, common to everything is this idea of implicit language um, that, that they're getting. So, so the, the thought was, how can we enhance um, a, uh, let's say, a, a seven-year-old's, um, how can we enhance their ability to acquire something that they didn't acquire in the first two years of their life to begin with? So we're, we're using implicit language techniques, and we, we've learned how to use other things with it. For example... Music and language have, have been put together. That's, I mentioned in the beginning that we do have a part of the functional MRI where we play music. What I didn't mention was that there sometimes, I did mention that Broca's area almost never responds to language. I should have added that it does often respond to music and not language. So that tells us that, um, although we've known for years that the the brain specifically broke his area, sometimes looks at music as if it were language, meaning that if we hear somebody play something and they make a mistake, we know they made a mistake. So what we're trying to do with the music part is we have figured out, and again, this is not music therapy, which is very good, by the way, where a child learns how to play or listen to something that's very calming like Mozart. This is um, tweaking out what parts of music, like like. The, the beat or the rhythm, for example, can help a, ch- a child acquire language. As a quick example of music, it might be something like, and pardon my voice, it'll be something like, I went to the store and I bought some bread. So that would be an example of how if we apply using a metronome or something like that, um, if we keep the beat while we're talking or while the child is trying to talk, that enhances language. The second part of the nuts and bolts is movement. 
I think just about every parent, just about every parent knows that uh, kids love to jump on the trampoline and swing and spin around, and, and they're very happy with that. What we found in the past few years is that the part of the brain that likes to spin is called the cerebellum. Um, but that part of the brain is part of the primitive language learning machinery that will, that normally does connect to Broca's area and the other areas during infancy, but did not do so in children on the spectrum. So we've learned that by encouraging movement and stimulation of movement, or even watching a video like Top Gun or something else in which you get the sensation of movement, that's often enough to stimulate the cerebellum while they're getting this implicit language and help rebuild these tracks which have been lying dormant so that the cerebellum can go right back to Broca's area. Finally, the last technique we're using along with the implicit grammar and to help it is neuromodulation. Which is what, which is a ten dollar word for stimulating the brain externally. And what we've chosen to use is something very mild called transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS. Uh, there are many ways to stimulate the brain, but we've chosen this because it is safe. It has never had a side effect that we know about. Um, and it takes a little longer to do. And it's simply taking two wires um, and applying them to two different parts of the brain, let's say Broca's area, or areas that we would pick based on the functional MRI, and applying a very low dose of electrical current, so low that the child can hold the exposed wires and not feel anything at all. Um, and we'll do one or two sessions a week um, on different areas. And so far we found that just by doing that, while the child is hearing this implicit language, um, after one minute, two hours, and up to three weeks, uh, the child's language production, spontaneous conversational production, increases. So, so those are the nuts and bolts. That is, it all begins with implicit language helped by music, helped by movement, and helped by electrical stimulation. And where does the diffusion sensor imaging fit into this whole picture? The diffusion, the DTI um, goes together with the functional MRI and says, okay, what's connected to what? And, and therefore, do we want to stimulate Wernicke's area and help it maybe form a better connection to Broca's because the fMRI said it didn't or the DTI said it didn't? Or do we want to go to Broca's and make it head down to these primitive areas. Um, a lot of this is good heart science. Some of this is the work in progress. Uh, that is research. That is, we're still not sure as we go along which might be the best area to stimulate. But because it is harmless, uh, the parents give us feedback and say, it didn't do anything, or, oh, my God, my child said the following. So right. that's where the DTI comes in. And you are having some nice results with children. Oh, Yes. Okay, so in about uh, the three minutes that we have remaining, uh, uh, Johnny walks into your office, and the summary of what you do from start to finish is? The summary of what we do from start to finish is Johnny undergoes a two- to two-and-a-half-hour language assessment. 
in which we try to figure out how much language Johnny understands. Is it simple? Is it complicated? Most of the times it's just simple basic language. And how much language can Johnny produce? And so on and so forth. The next step is um, the family comes down to Columbia, meets with the director, um, and the director goes over everything that we do and all questions are asked and answered. Step three is we do the actual scan. Sometimes the children can come for a day and sort of play in the scanner just to become acclimated to it. Other children, the parents go, my child's going to need light sedation. And we use light sedation, which does not interfere with the scan at all um, or, or the results of the scan. Um, but ultimately, they would step four is they come back two weeks later and we go over the results, what they mean, and from there, we begin to work with the parents on a plan of action based on what we see. And that's very much a team effort, the parents, us, um, and what they've been doing so far and, and what their goals are. All right. And your website, again, is www.harrydschneidermd.com. And then there's another website, www.fmri.org. And what will people see there? Um, unfortunately, they'll see lots of great stuff, but we're still working on the autism part. Okay. So the the yeah the the link that fm fmri dot org goes to the site of Columbia where I work, and we're in the process of now including all the autism data, but it will give the person an overall idea of what we do at the lab and 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 what imaging is all about. Um, but it won't give them enough yet on the autism because we have a paper coming out soon. And as soon as that comes out, we'll probably just fill up the website. Okay. I want to let our listeners know about our show next week, and that will be with Philip and Alice Shabakov, authors of the new book, Poisoned Prophets, The Toxic Assault on Our Children. And joining the Shabakovs will also be two people who are in that book, uh, Mark and Elise Blacksell, who have an affected child. And Dr. Schneider, this I just want to really thank you for being on today. This work is absolutely fascinating. I think it's so important. It's one of the most important theories I've heard about in in years. So I really want to thank you for... My pleasure, and thank you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Autism One, A Conversation of Hope. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and we hope to see you here next week. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.